Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. My name is Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. Today, I am joined by Chantal V. Johnson, author of the recently published debut novel, Post Traumatic. And this is one of my favorite books of the year. It is an answer to every like literary question that I've had. I'm obsessed with it. Chantal, thank you so much for joining me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Everyone, every question that you've had, I answered. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, just kind of getting into it directly, this book feels to me like a confluence of like many things in my life. So I am a lawyer, you are a lawyer, and we're also thinking about fiction and what the possibilities of it are. And the much talked about topic of trauma plots this year in the literary world. And so just to get into it, I wanted to talk about the title of this book. And one of my favorite aspects of novel reading is when in its narration, it starts to be aware of its own creation. And throughout this book, Vivian, our main character, how she has like sparks of ideas for this novel. And for example, there's a quote where she says, Vivian felt once more the churning excitement of a creative idea. She would do in a novel what Kathleen Collins did on film, a strong black female lead with a highly developed interior. The cover would be spare, just text, no image of a thin woman, no bones, salt, or water in the title either. <laughs> she opened up her phone and wrote, can Vivian live ecstatically after what has been done to her? So all that to say, can you let us know about the title of this book and just give a little bit more about what this book is about? Sure. So the title Post Traumatic came pretty late in the book's journey. I think the working title for a long time, for like six years, was Dark Thoughts. And that's kind of, that's what I titled the document. Um, that's when I got my agent, that was the title. And then it kind of changed pretty close to the end, I think before we were about to, before we were packaging it to go on submission. And I ended up changing it to Post Traumatic. It just kind of felt, that title kind of felt like it embodied, it did a lot of different work um, for the book. Uh, because this is a book that's emphasizing the aftermath of a violent past. Um, and so I liked that. Vivian is a character who thinks that she's post-trauma. So it had this kind of like cheeky, but also confrontational, provocative uh, title to it that I that I really liked. And yeah, I think I think the book is it is about the aftermath of violent events featuring a character that I had never seen in literature before that I really wanted to see. Um, you know, someone who has experienced a lot of traumatic events in her life, but is still just very much uh, a really alive person. And so I know that we we talked a little bit about the, the Pearl Siegel article um, against the trauma plot. And I and I've said before, and I do think that my book was always kind of operating against some of the operating canonical trauma tropes, both in literature and in trauma psychology, to be honest. I feel like my book, uh, you know, when that essay came out, which I think it was either right before or right after my book came out, I actually don't remember, <laughs> but, but it was right around the time. And people kept asking me about it. And I was just like, well, my book isn't implicated in this at all, really, you know, because it's not doing any of these things. Um, it's not like my book doesn't think that trauma entirely defines its main character. Like my main character actually spends most of the book being like, what trauma? That doesn't define me. I'm making jokes about it. So I'm clearly over it. It doesn't, it doesn't affect or define me at all. Like part of her journey is actually realizing that 
the trauma is having some effect <laughs> on her. Um, and I don't think my book flattens uh, the characters that have experienced trauma. If, if anything, I think the traumatized characters are kind of larger than life, like both Vivian and her friends and like all of her clients in the psych ward are are big and messy and they have a lot of personality they haven't been flattened um and this was part of the kind of like what i was trying to do in the book was show traumatized characters that were not meek or passive or children um because i wasn't really interested in that there's a teenage client in the book but that's as young as we get um i wanted to show women who are adults who are survivors who are alive yeah, and I, I think you do that so well. And I mean, I think it was really interesting because I remember too, I don't remember the exact timeline of when that piece came out, but I was so intrigued to read this because it just reading the synopsis, it felt like a, not a response to it, but would be in conversation with some of the ideas there and kind of showing a way of doing, I guess, a trauma plot in a way that's progressive and feels original and is actually answering the questions that are raised by that piece it was really interesting reading them sort of in tandem. Um, and I guess in terms of you writing this novel, I wanted to ask you how you came to novel writing generally and why you chose fiction as the landscape for exploring these ideas. Yeah, it's so interesting. I So I studied poetry. That was my thing. Like I went to graduate school before I was in the workforce and then went to law school. Um, and I studied poetry. I studied like post-war um, British and American poetry. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And so confessional poetry was really important to me when I was, when I was younger. Um, I think uh, poetry that was about, poetry that was provocative, like I still think of Sylvia Plath as being very provocative and she's in my like literary ancestry, <laughs> someone who um, has this kind of severe mannered language um and a lot of anger uh but is also very funny and the bell jar was huge for me also when i was coming up um but i when i left graduate school i kind of also left poetry like i can be a very reactive person and i at the tail end of my graduate school career i kind of fell in love with the novel and i don't i don't really know why but i just started to feel like it was more relevant more more capacious like, I do believe that the novel is a form that can contain everything. It can contain every kind of language imaginable. And I don't really put any limits on it. Um, I think, I don't know if you've read this, there's this Jane Smiley essay. I think it's called The Circle of the Novel or something. But she articulates like 12 or 13 discourses that the novel can contain. And it's like gossip, uh, diary, travel, essay, polemic. Um, and I, I think that that's true. I feel like the novel is a huge container um, for basically every aspect of language and then consciousness, of course, which is something that I really wanted to explore in this, in this book. So I think the novel just felt like the most capacious language form that you, you could, that you could um, imagine. I need to read that essay because, so this is a random aside, but I was recently, mm -hmm. I really like Jonathan Franzen. I know he's like, I don't know. There's a lot of different opinions no about apologies. him. 
apologies for the like. <laughs> I know, right? Well, that's in it. That's something coming up on my list as well. Um, but basically, I saw a list of like some of his favorite books, and Jane Smiley was on there like four times, just a couple weeks ago. So I will definitely check that out as well. But going back to that topic, I've been reading this book. I'm like 50 pages into it. It's called Seduced by Story: The Use and Abuse of Narrative, and it's all about like questioning why we look to stories to like, under understand our past or ourselves, and so. That's something that I thought about in going back over this book is determining how you chose, I guess, third person narration and telling a story of Vivian, like various instances in which she kind of has a revelatory understanding of something, um, whether it's in relation to other characters, her family, at a party, karaoke, like all these different things. I'm wondering how you decided on that for the plot. And I guess second question, why did you go for third person? I mean, third person, honestly, it, it didn't start with any fancy craft thoughts at all. It really was, I need separation, I need distance. And because I had, so I had a poetry background in terms of studying it, but I also wrote it a little bit as well. And often when I would write it, I would write in the first person. So my rejection of first, first, first person was both like kind of a genre. I was rejecting like the lyric poetry mode and I was just trying to find a way to create distance to impose some kind of artificial distance between me and this main character I needed her to feel from the beginning as separate from me as possible um though I was certainly going to be drawing upon some of my autobiographical experience I needed to really shift into a this is not this is not me um and that allowed me to inhabit a space of freedom that I think that I, I need or any artist needs to really kind of create um, anything meaningful. In terms of autofiction, this, so I, I always like credit the ideas of autofiction when I started reading it like two years ago as kind of like being the start of me wanting to talk to authors because then I, I think it's an inherent, you know, question of a reader's response to wondering how much of something is autobiographical. But I, I think the there's more interesting questions, I guess, to be asked about the choices made in a novel. Going to the trauma plot piece, and one of my favorite authors, Brandon Taylor, he wrote a response to it. And I was going back over that in preparation for this. And there's something here that ties to lawyering as well that I thought was interesting. Um, but he says, I've been thinking about that lately, the way that people read fiction these days on the hunt. One of my creative writing teachers used to describe the kind of attention he wanted us to bring to workshop stories as reading like a prosecutor. There's a lawyer tie. <laughs> um, this strikes me as a form of paranoid reading in which the reader approaches a text from a defensive supposition that the author is out to deceive and beguile and misdirect. And I feel like this book in its distancing like that you mentioned really helps sort of aid in like steering away from having like, I guess the auto-fictional inquiry be like the main focus here and really grappling with these ideas that you have. So I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but I just, I saw that. I was like, that's kind of interesting thinking about from an auto-fictional lens, what you're doing in this book. Yeah, that's interesting. The auto-fiction question is always, I, I, I understand the kind of desire to say there's this group of artists, how can we lump them together so that we can talk about them, but also generate traffic to our website <laughs> but I think like I think we all like as an artist I'm very wary of those kinds of like clusters because and I even say this as someone who like I'm obsessed with music but when I get into like critics trying to like talk about genres of music it often things kind of start to fall apart very quickly because you like with the example of auto fiction you if you read everyone if you read them you took like an auto fiction class 
or you designed an auto fiction syllabus, you would read like 10 authors and see that actually they're all, they're doing very different things. Like, you know, like Knaus Card is very different from Sheila Hetty, who's very different from Ben Lerner. They're all actually pretty different. <laughs> and so it gets kind of, it gets strange to lump them all together. And sometimes it feels like, like the real estate development lobby creating neighborhoods, you know, to make those neighborhoods attractive, to make people want to move there. Uh, <laughs> but so my thoughts on autofiction is that, you know, I don't know, I, artists have always been drawing from, from their lives. I think each artist has a different relationship to, you know, like Ben Lerner said it best when he said that he, like autofiction is somewhat of a useful term, but for him, it's also like his relationship to the truth is such that he will always alter facts in, in favor of uh, his aesthetic goals. And I think about my own work in the same way. Like I don't have fidelity to facts when I'm writing. And most of my book is not autobiographical in any strict sense. Like things didn't happen that way. And I'm a very different person than the person who started writing that book, the person who was writing it four years in, and the person who published it in April. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point of like trying to group these authors into sort of one container, I guess, because like the only through line, I guess, there is like they're writing from their own, potentially from their own lives. And that's sort of it. And everyone has their own lives. So it's like it can be completely <laughs> different, you know, um, in that experience. And I guess in terms of there's this there's this passage, it's probably like one of my favorite passages in the book where Vivian's giving like a speech at a party and she's talking about the ethics of aesthetic consumption and thinking about, I guess, applying a moralistic lens to art. And I wanted to ask you about this idea of the ethics of aesthetic consumption and thinking about fiction as its own, I guess, fake realm. Like going back to the autofiction question of like, what is the through line between what those authors are doing? At the end of the day, to me, it seems like when we apply a fictional stamp on something, someone says they're writing a novel, I feel like the more interesting questions are what the novel is doing rather than like what the author, who they are or kind of how their sort of personal ties are applied to the to the novel, if that makes sense. Basically, I wanted to know what you think about how we think about the creator of fiction and applying like ethics to those questions. Yeah, it just, it feels like a, it feels very fraught. And I, I think that the way, like Vivian's kind of poking fun at this kind of overstatement of ethical aesthetic consumption. Um, and she wants to bring things back to the realm of actual human behavior. And I, I tend to do that as well myself, um, but I am also not a literary critic or like a New York media person who has to comment upon these things. So, so, but I just, for me, I'm not, I'm not so interested in those questions because ethics and morality are actually very serious to me, but I'd rather talk about the third rail issues of ethics and morality that are literally affecting whether people are alive or not. And, and so I kind of just make the same cop out as Vivian does, which is that like, why would I waste my time debating whether I should read something when, I mean, women and children are being murdered over here, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, it's kind of a cop out. But I think for me, it's just, it, it's, it doesn't really have an interest. And I'm also not a teacher, though. 
So, so I think I think teachers have to get into this. They have to talk about this stuff with their students. I have a lot of luxury and privilege in that I'm not, I'm just not doing that. You know, I don't have to like explain to a 19 year old why a particular point of view is dangerous. I don't have to worry about platforming any any views that could potentially be dangerous. So I can kind of pivot out of it. Do you have do you have thoughts? Yeah, I mean that's that's so interesting to me because when I was going back over that, I I, I had this similar sort of response when I'm reading or when I see criticism that talks about fiction as if it is reality really like weirds me out and in a way I'm like this is yeah, yeah. like I don't know if this is where the inquiry should lie I mean there's a quote here from her speech that I love it says I think we fixate on the ethics of aesthetic consumption because it's easier than dealing with the moral trespasses of real life and later she says how do we prevent the mass rape and abuse of women and children and what do we do with the offenders I wonder if part of that has to go back to you being a lawyer and understanding advocacy and real life stakes of being a lawyer versus the sort of more flexible kind of aspects of what art does in terms of it being something that I read on this chair here. And then, you know, I think about it and then that's kind of like, it does impact me significantly. And I love this book and I think about it all the time, but then it's such a different thing from real life things. So I don't, I don't yeah. know. I, I think I disagree with you to kind of go back to that. Yeah. And I also just, I love that the novel can contain going back to the kind of Jane Smiley, all the different discourses that you can have in novel. Like it's, it's, I will always find aesthetics to be this wonderful realm because I can put arguments in there and that, but that's very different than standing up in a courtroom and delivering the arguments that Vivian's making at the party, she can't make those arguments in a court of law, you know, but like I, as the novelist can put those in, in the novel. Um, and so aesthetics will always have a very important place in, in culture. And I think it's incredibly important, but for me, it is, it is different. And the people who want the people who talk about likability and want characters to be moral, it, it feels like they don't know actual people sometimes because I'm like, have you met a person? People are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, never be friends with anyone then. I mean, never trust anyone, you know, because people will betray you and they will disappoint you and, you know, their people are not consistent. And so if, if that's what you want, then just never, never talk to a person, but also never be one either. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm wondering now thinking about these questions too, like, what do you decide to pick up for yourself? Like, what are you interested in reading generally? It's always changing. One thing tends to lead to another. I mean, I get recommendations um, from friends all the time, but then often like I'll go, I spend a lot of time researching what to read next i'm always on the lookout for women who are doing interesting things so that's like the broadest category possible but it's just like women who are doing interesting things i would love it if they're writing about gender in some way that's great um but even if they're not you know if they're doing really interesting things i i, I want to know um so i do read you know most of the books that i read are by women i, I tend to winter is my least favorite season and so to cope I like to pick an author and read as many of their works as possible during the winter um right now it's Iris Murdoch so Iris Murdoch is going to be my she's going to get me through the winter <laughs> um and so and I just kind of I stumbled upon her because I was researching you know women that I haven't read before um and her name kept coming up 
and you know she was a philosopher who decided to write novels and many of her novels are comic novels and so it's like that's that's interesting we're getting into something so she's like a serious philosopher but then she really wants to write these comic set pieces and these picaresque books um books about aesthetics and and artists and writers she only wrote from the point of view of male narrators so like i just started reading all these things about her and i was like okay it's her (laughs) you know she's gonna be my winter person what about you how do you yeah. First, so that's really interesting you say that you're going to read Iris Murdoch. I I just read one of her books, the only book I've read by her. I think it's one of her deep cuts. It's called The Severed Head. Um, oh, great. I'm going to read that too. It's wild. It's a romp. It's basically like she sets up a bunch of different characters all like cheating on each other and like everyone gets in a relationship with someone else in the book and it's just constantly like shifting it's funny it's weird it's a little bit like surreal in certain aspects i want to read more of her so i'm curious to hear what you think about her once you you know get further into that project that Um, sounds very shakespearean she's very she loves shakespeare worshiped shakespeare and shakespeare is like you know king of the couple swap um so so yeah that's cool it sounds like one of her shakespearean ones yeah it it was funny because i Lauren Euler, who was on the podcast earlier this year, she shared like a passage from a book and didn't say like what it was. And I read it and I was like, is that Iris Murdoch? And I asked her and she's like, yeah, it's a fairly honorable defeat. So she has a very like distinctive singular like writing style and topics presented. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I've never really been able to like catch on an author like that before. <laughs> but it's anyways. Interesting that you say that. It's interesting that you say that because that's also, that tends to be a feature of many of the writers that I like that you could turn to a random page and then look at a paragraph and be like, that is a, that's an Iris Murdoch paragraph. You know, that's an Anita Bruckner paragraph. That's a Ben Lerner paragraph. And you just know, like right. I love stuff. I, I think the other thing, speaking of Lauren, Lauren Euler, I mean, she's just someone who like, she has very good taste. And so when she recommends a book, um, I think she's, she's led me to some good books before. So like people like that, where you're just like, Ooh, they have good taste, you know? like they're shouting out a book I think I think I should check it out at the very least I feel like writers give the best book recommendations and that's why like at the end of this I'll ask you for some too (laughs) but just to get into some more questions about what's going on in this novel I wanted to ask about how you came up with the structure and plot of this book how you thought about Vivian's progression from the beginning through to the conclusion of this book it was so haphazard it was just for a long time I was just adding words to the same word document and the structure didn't come until relatively late in the game to be honest it it was just I think the episodic like I I think about post-traumatic as being an episodic character study so there was something about that like many of the chapters are confined to a single setting or a setting or two Uh, I think that felt kind of manageable to me it felt like an instinctive aspect of the style like the chapters have title headings thinking about the 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 album let's say and how you could have 13 songs on an album that each song is like kind of very kind of different it could be in a different style but it's united by the, the the artist um so i think those kinds of structures and styles appealed to me but it it was very haphazard and writing it 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 was wild messy I had no idea what I was doing I don't have an MFA like what I had was I had studied literature at the graduate level and read a lot 
that's that's what I had. So it was just messy, intuitive, and didn't come together until the end, you know, kind of revising with my agent, um, revising with my editor. Music generally in this book. I wanted to ask you about your relationship to music and how it informed this book. And do you consider music, does it feel like a distinct I guess, area of enjoyment for you as opposed to like novels as an art form? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I often tell people that my music fandom is where I'm kind of the best as a person in that I will listen to anything. I will try anything. So I'm very adventurous. Whereas probably my interests in literature are pretty narrow and not as capacious. But like with music, it's like, I don't care what genre it is. I don't care who it is. If, if I like it, I like it. And, and that's it. And I wanted some of that in the, in the book. I also, music is just something that makes me really happy. And I wanted to have some joy in this book. And music is an area where I don't feel self-conscious at all in terms of like dancing and singing. So I wanted to give that to Vivian because she's so self-conscious and punishing of herself otherwise. Um, and I think that's going to continue. Like in my next book, I'm planning to write more set pieces where there's musical performance so that I can talk more about. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to have a character who is a musician um, and writing from, from their point of view. It's definitely something that I want to continue to explore uh, because it's just, it's my favorite art form. I love that. Yeah. Cause Vivian in the book, like whenever music comes up or she starts, she hears it. I think the reference is like in a, in a store or something, she instantly starts mm -hmm. like dancing to it. And so she has a very like immediate visceral happy response. And I think that really shines through in terms of balancing that with the more kind of negative thoughts that she has. And um, I think it works effectively. And I just love seeing, I love like, novels that are referential to other novels or music or whatever. And um, so mm -hmm. it, it was just, it was fun to see like what you picked out or what you included in there. From a legal perspective, the other challenge for me was, you know, knowing that the music industry is incredibly litigious. The challenge was how do I write about music without including song lyrics in the book? Because I don't want to get into that whole trying to get lyrics licensed. And so I had to find other ways to do that. So like describing music as if you're doing like music journalism and then, you know, describing her singing, describing dancing, you know, and then just some name dropping of bands and stuff. But and so it became like the, it, this was a moment where like my legal knowledge and then my aesthetic knowledge kind of like I had to I had to because I'm very risk averse. So writers are always asking me, like, can I quote this song lyric? My editor told me that I could quote two lines. And I'm like, I don't know why everyone has this myth that you can quote two lines. <laughs> <laughs> that's and funny. Like, fair use. And I'm like, that's a defense. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you want to get sued? <laughs> I mean, that that's so interesting to hear how your legal background kind of informed this novel, too, because I'd be curious to ask you about, you went to Stanford Law School, and I'm wondering... Was your law school experience positive, negative, or somewhere in the middle? <laughs> it was in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely in the middle. Like, the first year was really rough. It was, it was really, really challenging. I do not like cold calling. I do not like Socratic method. Um, that, that was very anxiety-inducing for me. And a lot of law, like, reading cases, like, the pedagogy was just not intuitive to me at all. 
Um, and then there was the culture of law school that I found to be pretty difficult until I found my uh, chosen friend group, but, you know, very, very masculinist and, you know, just could be very aggressive um, and patriarchal in this way that I didn't like at all. What about you? Yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to that. And I had, I would say a mixed experience. I think it was one of the most of course, it came like in my early 20s. And it's inherently like formative for me now practicing law. But I, I've been thinking lately about like what those three years kind of did to how I think about even now fiction. And like, I feel like even in this interview, I feel like I've been reflecting on the interviews this year, too. I feel like I'm so form focused and thinking about how you crafted it or like those kind of, I guess, critical questions about the novel itself. And I'm wondering if that kind of ties back to like the the Iraq of it all of law school of like trying to apply <laughs> rules and like considering the framework of what we're doing. I kind of had that realization and I don't know, but I mean, going back to like law school itself, I do think the competitive nature of it and mm -hmm. the adversarial nature of it was very different for me. I'm an only child. I've always been kind of on my own, like in terms of my studies and focusing, doing my own thing, I guess. And so having that kind of atmosphere was very weird for me. And I was very self critical during law school, very, panicky about what I'm doing because like in undergrad I always knew like or I had the idea like I want to go to law school so it was always kind of like that being the end game but then actually being in it I didn't know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be I didn't know where I wanted to go, go with that and then I also rediscovered my love of reading in the middle of law school which is weird so I don't, I don't know thank you yeah I don't think it's weird at all though I I feel like it it actually was helpful for me to have like while I was in law school and while I was writing the book to have law as something that I was kind of like I was cheating on on law law school with literature I was cheating on law with aesthetics like being feeling like my personality was constrained as a lawyer and in a world where things like hierarchy are observed and me as a person I'm just like there is no hierarchy you know, like you don't get to tell me what to do just because you're wearing a robe and you're elevated or like you're not a good person just because you're sitting there, you know, but like as a lawyer, we all have to pretend that that's true. And then as an artist, I can I can depict a judge as being really bad, <laughs> you know, and so it was very helpful for me to have law as something that I was kind of reacting against. Um, at the same time that it was helpful for me to have like a real job that, you know, I could always pivot into when writing got too hard or when writing felt useless, which it often does. Yeah. And that's interesting to think about, like, you know, the aesthetic experience of reading versus the very, like, as you're saying, the very formal, I guess, kind of strict aspects of what being a lawyer can kind of have associated with it, extending even from law school. And I think that does lead myself to kind of putting novels in particular on a pedestal because I feel like the sense of escapism is so real for me when I'm reading and kind of removing those kind of boundaries of like rule making I guess also in an application to novel reading is really fun but then I still kind of like in podcasting when I'm trying to come up with questions and stuff I kind of have to add like a critical lens to things but then I'm also really interested in like the aesthetic experience of reading generally and what it means to have a very lonely or isolated experience with a novel as opposed to having to talk to other people in my at work or, or what have you or deal with other people, you know, it just, 
big kind of questions I've been thinking about, but thank you for sharing about your law school experience. I've been very intrigued to hear about that. One thing that I'm really obsessed with in this book is the humor involved in it. And my last podcast was, was with Mona Awad and we talked about horror or comedy and horror is, are so kind of like linked to each other. And so in this book, you, it's hilarious as hell throughout the entire thing, <laughs> which I loved. I was going back through like all my highlights and there's so many just funny moments in this book. Yeah, with this book, it was both something that I, I went in with with the mission of, you know, it has to be funny. It has to be funny. Um, and, and something that just kind of arose naturally as I was writing. I think it's, it's part of my aesthetic. There was this kind of almost political element to it for me of being um, provocative, uh, but from a, from a survivor perspective. Um, like I wanted to make jokes about traumatic events, but I wanted them to be jokes that survivors and victims make to each other. And that felt really radical to me, but still the jokes had to be funny. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, but, you know, cannabis also helped. Um, I would say, I mean, cannabis is like a, a minor character in, in the book. <laughs> and it was also an influence in, in my writing of the book. The, the humor was, was really important to me from the beginning and it will be I mean I think my next book I mean what I know about it is that it I want it to be a, a comic novel um in in the comic novel tradition that's an interesting challenge to me like I think post-traumatic is a darkly comic novel but I think my next book is is just going to try to be as funny as possible for as long as possible that that is a, that is an interesting aesthetic challenge I think it's hard to do when I ask people like, what's a funny novel? What's a comic novel? They kind of are like, Hmm, how many examples can I think of? Like a comic novel that's, that's also has, that's literary, you know? And, and so I'll probably fail. Cause I think it's really hard to sustain, <laughs> you know, to sustain that for like 300 pages. Um, but that's, that's the next challenge. And that's going to require me to be a bit more, I don't know, I actually think ironically, that comic novels almost require a lot of outlining. Oh, Tessa Moshvag, who's one of my favorite writers, she had also mentioned that she wants to explore more comedy in her writing. And she recently published this short story called My New Novel, which really dabbles like completely in just like comedy. And I feel like that'd be so difficult. I think you can do it because this book is hilarious as hell. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. I, I'm excited to read whatever that ends up being, but it does sound so hard. I mean, I think outlining would probably be beneficial. Cause I mean, it, it's all about like, the punchline, right? <laughs> I think which kind of requires yeah. the outline. And kind of, I'm really into the elaborately choreographed set piece that you find in these English comic novels. I mean, like in Iris Murdoch's work, you know, like someone always has to like, you know, they have to like kidnap a dog, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then it's like three pages. So like, how are they going to get the dog out of the cage? And then how are they going to get the dog past the doorman? You know, so I'm talking about like, just very dumb stuff like that. Like, gotcha. I like to be as dumb as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Which then in turn becomes revelatory. So I'm, I'm here yes. for it. <laughs> Wondering how you feel about doing press for your book and talking about it on a public platform. How does that feel for you? I, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this book, but I'm curious to know how you think about that. It's exhausting, but I also do love it. Um, and I feel like I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> you know, I like talking to people. It's it's so lonely writing a book. 
it's really, really, really lonely. And you really just have to be by yourself. You know, writing isn't social, reading isn't social, and writing and reading are what you have to do to write. I mean, it's all just so lonely. So I love talking to people about my book, but it is exhausting. And it's it's difficult, if not impossible, to do the press and to write. So in a month or two or three after the book came out, I mean, I couldn't really write at all um, because I need a sense of privacy to write. And when you're constantly talking to people and front facing and having to like tweet, which I barely do anyway, because um, I'm not really into social media, but even the little that I did, it was like, okay, well, I can't write now because I still feel like I'm being watched. So I love to do it to like shepherd the book and to have these conversations. I mean, like talking to you is great. Talking to everyone is, is great. You have fascinating conversations with people, but I can't write like that. Um, so like my writing, I won't be getting any writing done today. It's not possible. <laughs> like I just have to go outside after this. Yeah, no, I get that. Well, thank you for making you know the the writing sacrifice <laughs> to join me today. I really I appreciate yeah, of that. I mean, but, you know, I'm a chatty person, um, and I'd say I'm probably fifty fifty introvert extrovert. So I just like pivot into extroversion for the day, and then go back to introversion tomorrow. Yeah, I mean that's been one thing too for me is I'm very much an introvert. I will say, and I've used this as a way to like push myself to hopefully think about books in a more interesting way, but also to be able to comfortably talk to people is I don't know it's, it's a daunting sometimes you know and I, I also really respect what every author does you know what I mean it's so it's so much work that you put into these novels that I, I hope I do it some form of justice and I don't know but anyway, so thank you I just wanted to ask about that because I sometimes feel a little bit self-indulgent asking people to come on but I don't know it's also another platform to you know talk about the book so I, I don't know anyways yeah, I mean everything is self-indulgent right that is a good point that is a good point <laughs> So I guess to wrap up here, I wanted to ask for some book recommendations, like any, maybe like a recent favorite, an all-time favorite, and then lastly, like any books that you're looking forward to aside from, you know, Iris Murdoch. Yeah, I, my, my favorite debut that I read this year, well, there were two, Sadiq Fofana's Stories from the Tenants Downstairs, which I just absolutely adore. Um, so I'll do short story collection and then novel. Novel, um, If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English by Mornaga. Um, I absolutely adored that book. Um, read it once, want to read it again. It was, it's fantastic. I think, have you read it? I have not. You, you have to. I think okay. that you would really love it. I think it's really formally interesting. Um, I think she's doing really interesting things with identity. Um, so it's about an Egyptian woman, Egyptian American woman who has never lived in Egypt before, but after Trump is elected, she moves to Egypt after like a progressive Twitter scandal that she gets herself involved in. So she's like exiled from New York and like has to go to Egypt. And then she falls in love with uh, uh, an Egyptian man um, who's addicted to drugs. And they end up in this tempestuous, violent kind of relationship. And the book alternates between her perspective and his perspective. And then there's like a third section where the book like just kind of formally explodes. Um, and it gets kind of, well, I don't want to ruin it, but it's just really interesting, fantastic. One of my favorite books of the year. Um, I'm currently reading, in addition to Iris Murdoch, I just started this book. Speaking of horror, actually, it's called String Follow by Simon Jacobs. Um, and I'm really loving it. 
It's like there's this mysterious force that's starting to haunt this group of teenagers. Um, and it's written in this really interesting language. It's getting really kind of granular into the character psychology, um, which I which I really, really like. And then, yeah, like I said, Iris Murdoch. Nice. Yeah, I have a copy of String Follow. It's like right there somewhere. <laughs> and MCD is one of my favorite imprints for like publishing yes. sort of like psychological horror. It's like literary as well. So I'll definitely pick that up. I hadn't, um, I've been eyeing it, but I haven't picked it up yet. So I will for sure. Thank you for those yeah, recommendations. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining me again. And I hope you all read it because this book is just so damn good. It just everything that I want in fiction, this book is doing. And it's just a joy to find books that kind of tap into exactly, I don't know, the questions that I have about fiction. And I feel like this book does that, as I mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. So just thank you so much for writing it. I can't wait to read whatever you have next coming. Very excited. So thank you. Thank you, Jalen. And I just wanted to say that I love your podcast. And I think that you're doing great stuff. I think that, you know, what I what I love about your podcast is how genuinely enthusiastic you are about books. And I think as a writer, that is incredibly helpful for me. Um, because I do think that one thing that happens with press and publicity and publication is that some of the joy of writing and reading can be lost when your work like becomes a commodity and you're kind of feeling like you're competing with people to get on lists and get you know you you can't help I mean only a saint or a martyr would be immune from these kinds of concerns that take you over when you become a published author and it's hard to remember that you know it's hard to remember that I was a, a little kid once who loved reading and I think that podcasts like yours um that feel very kind of pure <laughs> and unpainted, um, you know, come onto the scene. It's just, it's very helpful. So bravo. Thank you. That I can't tell you how much that means to me um, because I, I do take this, I try to have as much fun with this as possible and I, but I do take it very seriously <laughs> um, internally. Yeah. And so I just, that, that really means world to me. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. And I hope to talk to you next time as well when your next book comes out. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be a friend of the pod, of but thank you so much, everyone. Again, I'll link this below. I'll sign off here. Thanks everyone.